I'm Arun, and this is Get Wise College Admissions Explained. Welcome back. This week, Rapid Fire Myth Destruction. This is the final episode of Season 1, and we've decided to do something a little bit different. Rather than dive into a singular topic, we're going to debunk a series of myths, lies, and misconceptions. We asked over 50 college-wise counselors for some of the silly and sometimes absurd things they hear year after year when working with students and parents. And oh boy, did they deliver. Joining me to help destroy these myths is Nicole Pilar, who you may remember from Episode 5, Every Year of High School Matters. Nicole is a stone-cold admissions nerd and is super excited to do this. And as a counselor myself, I know I'm going to feel pretty darn good calling out some of the ridiculous BS. For families, many of these myths are at the root of anxiety around the process, and some can be downright destructive. So we'll definitely be considering this our good deed for the week. All right, rapid-fire myth destruction. Let's do it. Welcome back, Nicole. I'm uh, really excited to have you here for Rapid Fire Myths Destruction. I think you're just as excited, right? Uh, I've been kind of looking forward to this for the last, I don't know, two or three weeks. I feel so honored that you guys are having me as like the grand finale. Um, oh, yeah. I'm, There's going to be kind fireworks. Of, I feel really honored. I, I hope so. Fireworks, sparklers, yeah. cake would be great. Katy Perry's going to come out and <laughs> sing a song to... But no, season one has been a lot of fun, really interesting. We've had a lot of great feedback, and um, I'm stoked to kind of just dive in with you and tackle some of these myths that our counselors have uh, dug up in their conversations yeah. with students and uh, parents. So rapid fire, are you ready? Oh, I was born ready for this. I love rapid fire. Um, fingers crossed it goes as well as I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah. Let's go ahead and dive in. You and I best. had a chance to chat about a few of these that we, we thought mm-hmm. were um, interesting. And so let's start with this one that one of our counselors threw out. If a student doesn't have a lot of volunteering experience, colleges won't like them. Or is there a certain amount of hours they'd like to see? Okay, so I get this question a lot from parents. Um, I feel like there's, again... I blame Reddit and College Confidential, that like horrible, deep, dark part of the internet where like all great rumors come to rest or start. Um, people, I think, think that there's this like checklist of stuff kids have to have in order to go to college. It's like, oh, you have to be like class president. You have to have like a million volunteering hours. You have to be like president of the mock trial team and like run track. Like there's this like weird checklist. No. Students, you know, when it comes to volunteering, first off, If you volunteer and your mom's like dragging you to the soup kitchen and you're like, well, I'm going to write about my volunteering as part of my application, it's going to become really clear when you have very little to say about volunteering that you were dragged there by your mother, right? So, and when you say say very clear, could you elaborate on that? Very little to say. There's not a lot of reflection. It's really just like mechanic about like, my mom woke me up at Saturday at like 9 45. We, yeah, it's going to be super boring. So, my video advice with students is if you love to volunteer, if there's a cause that, excuse me, you're really passionate about? Is there something that you really love to enjoy and, and give back to your community? Absolutely. Put that on your application. But colleges aren't like, well, you didn't reach the 150 hour mark. We're not going to let you in. It's really about like, what did you spend your extracurricular time doing as opposed to how much time did you spend doing it? Yep. So much more about the why and the uh, impact. So next one up. I heard colleges have a quota on how many kids they will take from each high school. Eh, False there's the the groups of students applying each year change the applicant pool changes so yeah there's no quota that no false really not even like a kind of like hey we're gonna pick 
three to five this year. No, I mean, I think this is, again, it, probably because I feel like there's kids every year that are like, well, UCLA took seven of us last year, so that means that, like, none of us are going to get in or whatever. There's, all again, all of these, like, weird myths. You know, the, the quality of the applicant pool changes every year, and the quality of students applying from your high school changes every year. So it's not like, you know, UCLA, yes, they have the same number of spots in the class, but they're not, you know, saying, well, your high school got a bunch this year, so we have to, like, jump to another high school in your district or something. No, it's about the quality of the applicants, and that will change every single year um, because kids change every year. So, yeah, false, false. Whoever's perpetuating that, please stop. Yeah, and the institutional needs change every year. All right, next question. Oh, totally, yeah. We should just apply as a Latin major, and then they can transfer into engineering, pre-med, computer science when they're in. What a simple, easy plan. I'm sorry. This, Yeah. Um, no. Uh, and I'm speaking as a Latin major. Like, I actually, I wasn't a Latin major, but I took Latin in, uh, in high school. Um, first off, if a major is hard from the e get-go, like you know, engineering... Yes, exactly. Right. Out of many one. Um, I was watching Hamilton last night. So that's like a perfect reference. Right. Uh, no, if, if a major is hard from like the very beginning of the admissions process, like anything in STEM right now is super competitive. It's not like you can apply. I hear this every year. I'm sure you do too, Arun. You know, I have students who are like, well, I'm going to apply to be a Renaissance studies major at UCLA and then I'm going to transfer into a computer science program. Um, first off, if you don't demonstrate that you were like going to Ren fairs or dressing up as like Henry VIII on weekends, they're going to know that you're just trying to backdoor your way in. Um, and secondly, it's a lot harder to get in as an internal transfer to some of these programs than from the very beginning of the admission cycle so yeah no if it's if it's a school that admits by major if it's for a competitive program don't try to backdoor your way in i promise you it's actually gonna be a lot harder than what it was from the get-go yep we know someone who donated a bunch of civil war relics to princeton's library and he said he'd make a call to get me in so princeton's pretty much a target for me <laughs> also false i mean we have a joke that we say here at college wise like unless grandpa's name is on the building then no um different alums and different institutional priorities uh, this is again one of those big myths i think operation varsity blues really blew the lid off of this in many ways uh it really does depend on like the role that the alum plays at the institution but we all have to be remindful of the fact that like princeton has a lot of alums it's been around since like the beginning of america and so the likely unless they're like a very real deal and we're talking maybe like a handful like fingers and toes i also think you know to some extent you never know how much pull an alum has so like okay but there's no guarantee that that's going to happen so don't count on it and still make sure to like do well in your application because institutional yeah. priorities change every year, and that alum may actually not have any pull. They just are trying to seem important. Yeah. At best, it's icing on the cake. And if Princeton's a target for you, I guarantee you, you probably didn't even need to ask the question. <laughs> so True. Um, quote, I was told summer programs look good to colleges. This is like a yes and a no. I'm going to put this into two different buckets. I think that a lot of students, you know, they do like summer at Brown, right? Or they do like this summer program at Georgetown. Uh, first off, those are huge money makers for the institution. Remember, they don't have kids on campus, so they want to find a way to make additional revenue during the summer. So they basically sell their name to all of these summer program companies. Um, and they literally sell you on the idea that, ooh, if you go to like summer at Cornell, you're going to have like a leg up when you apply to Cornell. Not how it is. Colleges don't really care. The benefit I would say about summer programs is sometimes they can be really great in terms of introducing you to like a major or a program but in terms of giving you a leg up in the admissions process at that specific college it's a revenue generator those colleges don't care you will not get a leg up um, you don't get special bonus points for going to a summer program at that college yep 
Another myth here. Getting a letter of recommendation from someone famous slash important will get you into your dream school. And being here in Los Angeles, I get this question a lot. Yeah, in Orange County, I feel like um, I, I, I get that question a lot, too. Uh, the answer is no. Um, the fame of the individual writing you the letter of recommendation, like, well, you know, is something that will probably be talked about in, like, the break room at that institution. They're really looking at, does this person know you, right? So if, like, your mom's veterinarian's hairdresser's cousin is Oprah, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I want Oprah to write me that letter of recommendation, but you only spent 20 minutes in a room with her, first off, the quality of that letter of rec is going to not be very good. Um, and really, the letter of recommendation is about, like, some Somebody that can actually speak to you and your qual like the things that are good about your candidacy so oprah 20 minutes cool but not going to be a strong letter of rec all right mit didn't admit me because of yield protection a college has a vested interest in the amount of students that yield from an applicant pool, right? So basically, you know, of the number of students that apply and of the number of students that we send out admissions officers, how many people say yes back to us, right? I call it, you know, again, you know how much I love to use reality television around the bachelor principle, right? If I offer you a rose, how many of you guys say yes back to my offer of a rose, right? And that refers to the number, uh, the percentage of students that say yes back to that offer. Harvard, for example, I think has an 85% yield rate, right? So a lot of kids are saying yes back to them. Schools like MIT don't need to do yield protection because, quite frankly, they have plenty of kids banging on the door trying to get in, right? So they really don't need to, like, play the yield protection game. There are other institutions where, excuse me, where they do this, like, demonstrated interest where they will track, like, hey, you know, we want to make sure that we're not offering a spot to a kid that's not actually going to accept it. MIT has such a high percentage of students that say yes back to them. They Again, they don't need to care about who's going to actually accept a response back because they know they have a wait list and a bunch of kids that would choose to come here. So yield protection isn't a thing at schools like MIT or Harvard or like the big fancy sweatshirt schools that you and I both know the names of. Right. So you're telling me if a student goes and visits Stanford three times, that's not going to help them? No, because Stanford doesn't, uh, okay, so this also has to do with yield protection, right, and demonstrate interest, um, or DI, as we kind of call it in our, like, counselor lingo. A school like Stanford, again, doesn't doesn't track demonstrate interest, doesn't do the whole yield protection game, because they, they know that they don't really care. They um, don't yes, care. it's a great way for you to go and see, do you know, do you like Silicon Valley, and are you, like, a fan of the farm, right? But it's really, you know, they don't, they don't need, I think they have the highest percentage of students that say yes back to them, I believe. Uh, is they kind of flip-flop like back and forth with Harvard, crazy. yeah. Yeah, they're always in competition, but let's be real, West Coast is best coast. Um, and so I think, you know, with a school like Stanford and some of these yield protection things, I, you know, if I'm being 100% honest, I sometimes think that kids say that because they don't want people to, like, think that they're, it's like an ego thing, if I'm being 100% honest. I think yield protection is something that a lot of students say because it's a way to make themselves feel better from being denied. And look, I mean, schools like Stanford, 95% of kids get the boot, right? You know, I mean, there's there's these are really, really difficult schools to get into. So yield protection is not really a thing. Demonstrated interest, though, um, is a thing at certain schools. And these are ones that typically will offer evaluative interviews that are included in the letters of rec. These are the kids, or excuse me, as part of like your application uh, profile, like documents. Um, these are schools that are legitimately legitimately tracking like do you open our emails are you choosing to come to events that we put on in your community these are not the stanfords and the harvards and the yales of the world or any of those types of places these are the schools that are typically like uh, tier two just sounds gross to me but like it's like the tier two and below kind of institutions tier two and selectivity right yeah yeah um speaking of demonstrated interest early decisions a form of demonstrated interest 
and a student, if they apply ED, this is a myth I want you to bust, we can change our mind. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no. Let's talk about early decision just to kind of, again, briefly touch on the different types of, of deadlines. Early decision is the binding one. It's like, again, it's as if you were night one at the bachelor mansion, you got down on one knee and decided to forsake all others, right? I mean, that is the school that you are so in love with that you're saying, if I apply just to you, I am going to be withdrawing all of my other applications if you pick me, essentially, right? So it's it's a binding agreement. Colleges know it's binding. Colleges expect that families do their you know due diligence. Every single college that accepts federal financial aid is going to have something called the net price calculator on their website. So for families that are concerned about finances, you know you should do the net price calculator. That being said, look, early decision is binding, but there are instances where, you know, maybe like the parents lost the house, maybe someone lost their job, maybe mom was diagnosed with cancer. There are things that happen from the point of when you like submit your application to when you're actually admitted that can affect the financial, can affect the financial, you know, situation of a family or something really big happens. That should be the exception, though, not the norm. Early decision isn't a, ooh, I want to get in and see if I get there. No, it's a binding agreement. It's the reason why early decision has a higher admit rate than the other admission type or the other other application deadline types because it is it is a commitment on both sides of the table other thing to say too by the way just about like the whole like breaking the decision that can actually have bad ramifications down the line because remember your school counselor has to sign off on you applying early decision to a school they literally have to say that you know you understand the terms and conditions of this of this decision and so if you break that decision it's going to kind of look bad um for your school community and that sometimes can have down like downstream effects to some extent oh yeah if you have if you have little brothers and sisters or you decide to transfer to that school later Mm -hmm. there are records being kept in all sorts of forms nowadays so absolutely so here's a big one only asians get into the ucs university of california system oh gosh okay so let's talk about that because i feel like that's something that is such a huge huge point of concern and myth and fear out there and again i don't know where it comes from no. The answer is no. Um, one, just from a statistical perspective, if you actually look at the admit data, it's not just Asians getting into the UCs. So that's just from a data perspective, patently untrue. But I think the other thing, and this is where I think that myth comes from, when you fill out the UC application, there is a section before you submit that's about demographic information. And it's like, it's part of the submission process. It's not actually part of the application. And there's a reason why they put it as part of the submission process, because it's a way for them to gather data about who is applying to the UC system. But excuse me, when you apl- when you, like a reader is reading your UC application, they don't even see any of that data because it's illegal in the state of California to even be looking at that information, right? Now, I do want to make a caveat. There is legislation that is going to be putting information that is going to be putting back on the ballot to voters in November in California whether or not the UCs uh, and other public institutions should include the use of race as part of the admissions process. That is something that's going to be going to the voters this coming fall. But as of right now, that is illegal in the state of California. It is not going to be used. Um, it will be up for the voters to decide if they want to change their minds on that but that's been the case for like literally since i think the 90s or at least the early 2000s yeah and having been a reader at ucla let me confirm every single thing you said is true and this gets to something else which having been a reader at ucla which gets more applications than any university in the united states and has many 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 essays here's the myth i heard colleges don't even read the essays anyway 
eh, false. Um, let's okay. So let's actually talk about the essays. First off, if a college has like college specific essays that are just going to them, like Columbia or USC or Harvard, if these are essays that are just for that institution, they absolutely are going to read them. They spent hours debating in summer before the application went live about what they want to ask applicants. Stanford doesn't give you guys 11 essays just for funsies. Like that's not, that's not what they're doing. So they absolutely do care about those essays. And in fact, I'd make an argument that a school that puts out specific essays that they want you to answer for their institutional loan care hugely about those essays. Because remember, they have to actually read these as part of their application review. So students, you really want to, you know, the essay can be the tipping point too. I've seen cases where students, you know, there's other parts of the application that may not necessarily be so strong, but their essays and their the personal side of the application shines so bright because of those that they really do kind of rise to the top of the application file. So don't skimp on those kids because they really can have an impact and if you can demonstrate fit through those essays and who you are, that makes you likable. And that makes me as a, as a reader and as an admissions officer want to fight for you in committee. Yeah. And the more selective a school is, the greater the emphasis on those supplemental essays beyond Absolutely. just the, you know, the uh, personal statement. So this is one we get all the time. My best friend's mom's cousin knows someone who was roommates with a kid who got into Harvard with a 2.5 GPA. <laughs> yeah, I hear these. You hear these stories all the time, right? About those, you know, those kids that have like, you know, 22 GPAs and gotten, or excuse me, 22 ACT scores. Why like do these stories happen? Why, why does this myth even, I mean, everyone knows on the face of it, no one's getting with a 2.5 to, why, why does this happen? I, I, I think it's, you know, a part of it is we as, as human beings love the exceptional, right? And those are just instances that are just like so out there that it's almost, it takes on a myth, right? Like quite literally. First off, I, I think one of the things we have to remember and, and students, this is where, this just by the way goes for every single thing, not just like these weird unicorn stories that kind of, you know, are truly fantasy, right? You know, 2.5 GPA into Princeton. None of us know what's in the app besides that student, generally speaking, right? None of us are in the room when the admissions decision is made. Yeah, the speculation. I, I really thought you were going to go with the Hamilton quote of, you know, who's <laughs> in the room when it happened. So I'm a little disappointed oh, you I missed know. that. We haven't gone to that. We, I, I wish we could do like a whole like Hamilton and how it relates to college admissions because oh. I feel like that'd be a really fun podcast. I think there'd be like 73 of you at college-wise who'd want to be part of that one. <laughs> Question. Now we're getting to, you know, some of these bits and pieces of the, you know, the application. If he oh, just takes every practice test known to humanity, he will definitely get his highest SAT or ACT score. Okay. Um, I think the idea here, you know, just taking practice tests, prepping relentlessly will get me that perfect score that I need to get into Stanford. Well, I, I think that. First off, there you could have perfect scores across the board and perfect GPA and, and whatever perfect is everything and still not get into Stanford. So that's, I mean, cool. You're theoretically helping your candidacy. But let's kind of dive deeper into this because I think there's a lot underneath the surface that people don't realize here. Um, you know, I'm not anti-practice test, but the reality is, is there's only so many practice tests that like are officially released from College Board and ACT. So at some point, you're actually going to run out of practice tests. But the second thing is too, you know, again, your application isn't just a test score, right? If you're applying to an institution that looks at admissions from a holistic lens, they're not just looking at you from a test score. And the amount of time that you could be using, um, you know, not doing practice tests might actually be the thing that helps get you in. So I always like to tell students, you know, Practice tests can be helpful, but if you're doing practice tests all the time, like test prep is essentially your activity, 
that's kind of nerve-wracking like the, at some point you have to you have to stop and accept that you have done the best you can and work to kind of make something that's going to make you more interesting because again there are plenty of kids at some of these schools that have perfect grades and test scores what do you have that makes you interesting in that applicant pool and nine times out of ten it's not going to be a 36 or a 1600 yeah 100 percent true i mean it's losing uh losing track of what the colleges are ultimately actually evaluating mm-hmm. on if you decide your energy should be spent on mere practice um tests there's a lot of other ways you can impact the world in more meaningful ways my student really needs to go to x school to get a job after college (sighs) okay i feel really passionately about this and maybe it's because i went to a small liberal arts college and people are like how can you get a job when you graduate from there okay spoiler um Everyone in my friend group is either getting a fully funded PhD or is working in a job that is above the median salary in California. So, so not Starbucks baristas, because that's no, the kind Starbucks of joke, baristas. right? My about friend that's an English college. major. <laughs> yeah, um, I think you know, and, and I I want to talk about. I think that a lot of this myth comes from especially families that have international backgrounds, um, because you know, students in other parts of the world where you went to college really does set you up for the rest of your life. You know, there's like only like what three technical schools in India where if like, if you go there, you're set for life, right? Like in China, you know, Peking University and Tsinghao are like the two schools, or if you really want to go far in that country, that's where you need to go, right? So, you know, I think especially for international families or families that are not from the US, there is that perception. And so there's a natural gravitation to the school that you know, and it's generally the big fancy sweatshirt schools. But one of the cool things we have in this country is, you know, it's really not about where you go necessarily as it is what you do while you're there. Um, you know, Tim Cook went to Auburn, which is a school that has a pretty high admit rate. But Auburn is has the best supply chain management program in the country. Shout out, you know, War Eagle, right? If you're running Apple, you really got to know supply chains, right? You know, so I think sometimes, you know, it's really about thinking what are your goals after college and what are the schools that are necessarily going to help you get there, right? Um, you know, I think of schools like Babson or Bentley or Bryant that are great schools for business because they literally integrate business principles as part of the classes that students have to take in order to graduate from those schools. I think about University of San Francisco and how every kid that does business there has to take computer science because like you're in San Francisco to some extent, right? So I would say students, the benefit of maybe going to a large school isn't the education that you're going to receive. It's sometimes the opportunities because they have a bunch of money, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't go to another institution that maybe isn't as famous, graduate top of your class and get a ton of great job offers or being able to go to like an amazing graduate school. Um, But yeah, we're very fortunate to live in a country that is very much about like work ethic and not necessarily about where you went. Yeah. And it's worth like you know, bringing the University of Chicago grad me has to bring up the econ studies that kind of show that like, yes, going to a highly selective university and maybe the first few years after graduation mm-hmm. has some payoffs. But after about five years, and certainly by 10 years, it's pretty meaningless. Um, it's impossible to actually yeah. look at salary data, positions, titles and go, oh, they must have gone to a highly selective university. So much more is exactly what you mentioned at the start. It's about what you do while you're at that school. I think, you know, and the other thing I always like to bring up to to families is like a lot of these schools don't graduate enough people, quite frankly, for the U.S. like economy. Right. So if we look at like the top 10 schools that are hired in Silicon Valley. Right. Yes. There's some fancy names on there. Berkeley, Stanford, Carnegie Mellon. But San Jose State and ASU are on there, too. And it's partly because they, you know, there's we need more engineers than UC Berkeley graduates each year. Right. Um, One of my favorite statistics, I think it's like one in three or one in four graduates in the state of California is a Cal State grad. 
right? California isn't like going to pieces economically. I mean, you know, COVID is kind of causing some challenges, but like the state's doing pretty well overall. And so I would say that, you know, again, it's not about where you go. It's about what you do while you're there. And the likelihood of you succeeding after college is pretty high because, you know, it's not, again, there's not enough graduates from some of these schools to fully support industries. There's plenty of kids that have gone to schools that you don't necessarily know the names of. One of my favorite activities, students, if you want to like have fun, look at the the undergraduate institutions for the top Fortune 100 CEOs. You'll be shocked at some of the places that they went and did their undergraduate at. It's really their grad schools that help them get to where they are. Yep. Um, something that pops up, you know, I work with a lot of students who are aiming for selective universities, and I get this question this myth our high school is so strong that a b here is like an a everywhere else it's too bad my kid with the b's is going to be penalized for going to a better high school no um this speaks to the whole concept that students are evaluating the context of their environment um so as an institution i'm not like you're competing within your i call it like your um your biosphere so to speak again i'm super into jurassic park um, so you're really competing against like, you know, what classes did you take at your high school? How did you do in those classes? How does that compare with what's offered at your high school? And how does that compare with other students at your high school? So yeah, you're arguably competing with the students within your area. But the kids, like, for example, where I live in Irvine, you know, they're t- even though you're in the same district, the h- opportunities at each high school are rapidly different, right? So I think this is where the school profile, there's a lot of other documents that your school sends off that allows um, the institution that you're applying to to have context for your environment. Environment. And so they're able to see, you know, you know, how how difficult is it to get a B, right? How, you know, what is the distribution of grades here at this institution? So they'll be able to tell. And most of the time, too, admissions officers, you know, they know they they either live or work or they really spend time studying and getting to the region that they're uh, reading applicants for. Um, and so it's not like they don't know your high school. It's not like they don't have a reason to pick up the phone and find out more information. That's why you literally put your your school counselor's number on there. So I would say, yeah, that's patently false because kids aren't kids aren't com- kids aren't compared that way. Um, you're really looking at in the context of your environment absolutely and i this is not to pick on the boys but this is a question that i or a myth that comes out of the mouths of uh so many boys that i've worked with over the years colleges don't really care about ninth or 12th grade yet they still want to go to a berkeley (laughs) or an nyu so this idea that you know that that first year of high school that last year of college doesn't really matter in the admissions process what do you think of that as a myth well, you know, we talked about this on the last podcast that you had me on, right? Like the years that matter and everything. Uh, quick recap, also false. You'll notice there's a trend in a lot of these myths, guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, that most of them are really false. Uh, I would say, first off, colleges are going to get your transcript, right? They're going to see the history, uh, your academic history at that institution. So, you know, ninth and 10th grade absolutely matter. Some schools also will calculate overall GPA. Sometimes they'll use 10th and 11th, you know, so you really do want to be paying attention. That being said, maybe you had a really crappy freshman year, right? Because maybe you were new in town. I don't know, your family broke up, something, you know, something happened. If you, I'm really curious into how you recovered from that. So years 10 and 11, excuse me, years nine and 10 absolutely matter, but it's really from the context of, okay, so if you struggled, how did you do, how have you done since then? But if you maybe did really well and then you started to struggle, that's where it kind of gets to be concerned. So I'm definitely going to see your transcript. I'm going to see the academic story there. So it's, you know, you do want to do well in ninth and 10th grade, but it's also kind of forgivable, especially at the beginning of high school, as long as you have an upward trajectory. Yeah. And shout out to episode five. If any of you want to hear Nicole dive uh, deep on that, please uh, make sure you check out that episode. 
you're someone who's involved with so much, Nicole, and this speaks to something that question pops up all the time, that there exists some hierarchy of activities where some are more impressive, just on the face of it, than others. Please bust that myth. (sighs) Okay. No, that's like totally false, guys. Um, Again, it speaks to this whole idea of like, there's a checklist, right? Like, it's better to be like president of mock trial than it is to be like varsity captain runner on track and field or whatever. No, it's really about, you know, we talk a lot about this around you and I, like intentionality of choice, right? Like the hierarchy of activities is really like, what was your hierarchy, right? Like internally, like why did you choose to, you know, engage in certain things and not others? Um, I always like to tell students there's no such thing as like the perfect activity beyond the one that you actually want to do, right? I have parents that are like, well, you know, she doesn't have a lot of volunteering. And I'm like, well, does she want to do volunteering? If she doesn't want to do volunteering, then why are we forcing her to do volunteering, right? Like maybe she's super into theater. Maybe she really loves going out and volunteering at the nature center as opposed to like the soup kitchen if she actually does volunteering, right? Um, So I think with students, you know, there's no hierarchy of activities beyond your own personal hierarchy, so to speak. Why are you choosing certain things over others? That's the thing I'm interested in as an admissions officer, the why behind the what. And if you can provide that and really demonstrate, you know, maybe it's a cause that's really important to you. Maybe it was a problem in your community. Maybe it's something you and your family have been involved in for you, excuse me, for years. I don't know. Help me as a reader understand why you chose some things over others. But in terms of like the general admissions pool, yeah, it's not like, you know, oh, all the kids that did, you know, ASB get to get five extra points. No, that's not how that works. Yeah. Well, related to that, I heard my kid needs to be well-rounded. So that's so that's an interesting myth. Uh, no, uh, I think that that myth, you know, could you say that again, by the way, admissions. I said that that's an interesting myth. Uh, and the answer is no. Uh, but I want to give some context and history to that. Because I think if you were talking about admissions like 15, 20 years ago, there were a lot of kids that were very well rounded when they applied, right? Like they did, you know, sports, they did leadership, they did church group, like they were they were involved in lots of things. I would say, you know, nowadays, it's really interesting to have kids that I like to refer to as angular students that go deep and have identified an interest and have been, you know, really able to dive into that on a deeper level. Um, And so I think that's not to say that a student, you know, can't be involved in multiple things, but I need to understand the reason behind those. Um, And so I'm hesitant to say like, you know, because I don't want people to leave this podcast thinking like, oh, I have like too many disparate activities or whatever. That's not what I'm arguing. I think it's really, again, about like, tell me the reason why you're involved in X. But again, we also talked about this too on the last podcast about like not stretching yourself too thin. I think with students, you know, the ability to dive deep into a concept or an activity or an area is just going to lend itself as you start taking more rigorous coursework. But also you're going to be a much more interesting person when you're able to tell me why you said no to some things and yes to others. Right. Well, and I think it also, what we're talking a little bit about there is just this checklist idea, you know, I need to have sports, I need to have music, I need to have leadership, I need to have community service with no, like you said, intentionality behind why you're engaging with each and every one of those. If you have reasons and they're thoughtful and well-considered, no problem. But the kids who just like, yeah, are trying to tick off boxes, there's very, uh, very limited um, uh, results for that. Um, And you're passionate about a lot of things, Nicole. Um, And this is one of those things that you can be passionate about. But I I hear this, and I know it's something that frustrates me. Community colleges for losers or kids who can't hack real college. Okay, do you need to have a sip of water Uh, and relax, calm down just a little bit? So 
I love community colleges. I think they are truly like the infantry of uh of of college in this country. Community colleges are are such an incredible resource that we are so fortunate to have. I will admit I live in California. I would say I will go toe to toe with anybody. We have the best system of public higher education in the world, community colleges included. Um, community colleges are a great opportunity because, you know, not every kid is ready to go to a four year right after college. Not every kid can afford to go to a four year right after college. Community colleges provide a great opportunity for students. You know, maybe you had a crappy high school year. Maybe you just didn't do well in high school. Maybe you didn't really get it until the end of high school, right? I'll admit I have family members uh, that went to community college and then they transferred and they're doing amazing things now because, and they tell me when we have Thanksgiving, they say, Nicole, I am so grateful that I went to Santa Barbara City College because Santa Barbara City College provided me an environment that, by the way, most community colleges have small classes. You wanna take physics at UC Irvine, it's probably gonna be about 300 people. You take physics at IVC, it's maybe 35, right? So there's actually an argument. There's a lot of really interesting academic literature out there that talks about persistence rates. Um, students that are transfer students tend to have better GPAs and tend to graduate more likely on time because the foundational knowledge that they have is a lot stronger for their majors to some extent than some of the students that start off at a four year, especially at like big institutions. So community colleges are a great option. Nine times out of 10, they are open enrollment. So students, community college is always an option. Let's say in the spring of your senior year, you didn't get the Yahtzee game that you wanted in college admissions or whatever, right? Community college is there. There's so many schools that have pathway opportunities. Um, you know, we are here in California. USC is the most transfer friendly, like private institution I've ever seen in my life. Um, so there are amazing options and opportunities available to transfer students that I think students kind of dismiss when in fact, you know, those are kind of like stealth hidden gems that really should be considered, especially for students that, you know, maybe didn't have a great academic career or maybe didn't have like a great academic start in high school because they can be opportunities for you to kind of get used to the college life in a not so highly stressful environment. Yeah, well, you're not going into debt. It allows you to be more considerate about your careers and, and changes in that uh, plan. And yes, like you, I am a, a strong advocate for the quality of community colleges. I think I saw a, a statistics earlier today. It's less than a fifth of students are actually starting college as a 18-year-old in a residential setting. So even when we talk yeah. about going to college for the first time, it's a very small percentage of college goers who are doing, you know, kind of what you see there on television or, or film, the popular idea of heading to football games and living in a dorm and, and those kinds of things. So I think this broader worldview is essential. Um, one last myth I want to ask you to tackle, and that's this idea that the Ivies, they're so selective, they're reserving spots for valedictorians. No, <laughs> like just patently false. Are you sure? Um, here's yes, I'm 100 percent sure. Uh, here's the reason why: there are too many valedictorians out there than there are spots at the Ivy League, right? Um, you know, there's like what maybe thirty thousand high schools in America, 34, just valedictorians. 000. Yeah, thirty-four thousand. Uh, Princeton maybe has an entering class of what between twenty-five hundred and three thousand kids. Like they could admit two and a half entering freshman classes of just valedictorians that apply there. I think that was a stat that you and I talked about a few years yeah. ago, right? Um, well, more accurately, and maybe I'll have, I'll pause you right there just for a second. More accurately, it's, it's sitting more somewhere kind of like between 15 and 18 are most of the Ivies. Harvard's 1,660. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, I think like 
when we look at the giant, like the, by the way, and here's the other thing too, we're just talking 34,000 high schools in America. These are institutions that pride themselves on having like diverse communities. Like we want, you know, you'll notice, by the way, a lot of these schools tout how many countries they have students represented on campus and how many states they manage to admit, right? Always, everyone's going for Alaska and South Dakota kids, right? Um, so I think, you know, when we talk about the valedictorians, that's a fantastic accomplishment, students. And I am in no way knocking that. You have worked really hard. Um, number one, right? That's not going to be the thing that gets you in the door at these schools, though. That's not, I mean, that's that speaks to the absurdity of them. You, you know, you and I talk about this all the time, right? You could be literally perfect in everything. And you know what? That's just not, that's not the way the game's going to be played that year. Because there's institutional priorities. There's so many other considerations that are unknown. And so students, you know, if you're valedictorian, pat yourself on the back. That's an amazing accomplishment. But I also want to caution you and say that that's not going to be the thing that gets you into some of these selective schools. Will it help? Sure. But you have no idea how it will help. So don't hang your hat on just that one thing. Yeah, everything that brought you to a place that allowed you to claim that title of valedictorian, that will be valuable. The title itself, pretty secondary amongst the most selective of schools. So mm -hmm. uh, it's always awesome hearing you, you know, kind of break down these myths. Um, Can't believe Nicole, we're done. We've been saying no a lot, but the reality is, is um, there are things, places that we can kind of encourage students to kind of find the truth you know where the, how how should what's your advice to the folks like how to be skeptical about the rumors and how should they check facts and where should they get good info beyond our podcast and everything that college wise i was about to say besides us um besides think, me and you, you know, where of, else can people yeah, get good information right? um I would say, first off, your school counselor at your high school is a fantastic, fantastic resource that I find a lot of kids don't like utilize, which I think is just such a pity because that's a resource that your tax dollars are paying for, right? If you're at a public school, it's definitely something that you're paying for if you're at a private institution. So talk to those people. They work so hard at making sure that they're up to date with all the counseling, no, you know, go-tos. And even if they're not 100% sure what the answer is, they'll be able to find out for you because they have access to a lot of those resources. I think the other thing too is the college itself. Right. If you're here, you know, the I heard's right. Call up Princeton, shoot them an email. They'll be happy to dispel of these things because they know how frustrating that stuff is. Um, I also think, you know, there's some really great uh, I don't know how technical we want to get, but there's some fantastic like, you know, chronicle of higher education inside higher education. There's some really great industry publications that I think are one really fascinating for you and me, but are great resources to kind of talk about all the trends, and the news and everything that's happening out there to kind of dispel a lot of these rumors. Um those would be my go-tos, honestly, Ren. You got anything to add? Well, I, you know, I think um, it's easy to take cheap shots at the mainstream media, you know, for the way they cover certain topics, certain issues. But I think when it comes to sure. colleges and universities, and while they tend to over-represent highly selective colleges, I think the major newspapers, the Washington Post, I think the New York Times, have fine education sections, which are capturing the broader narrative for the most part, though for they sure. don't cover things like community colleges the way you and I would like um, to see them Not um, do it. Um, but I do agree with you that going to the high school, speaking to the colleges um, directly is super important. But I also think having those conversations, you know, with other, you know, uh, students and adults who are near and near the admissions process is valuable. But you have to understand that they're just bringing a singular viewpoint. You know, it's just an yeah. anecdote and anecdotes are not the same as data. 
Um, and one story is not the same as a narrative. And so it is really important that uh, students and parents are surveying a broad array of sources as they, you know, uh, look to gather information to make uh, final decisions. I'm always bothered by folks who can take a single tweet um, or a single article and say, aha, this is what I was looking for. You know, this proves um, my theory. No, it confirms a bias is more what we're talking about here. So I'm going to encourage people to dig in deeper. So any last bits, pieces of advice? Um, I'm waiting for Carrie Perry, uh, Katie Perry to get queued up here and the fireworks <laughs> to begin. But uh, final thoughts you'd want to share, Nicole? I would say, you know, especially this year, students, this is a this is a truly once in 150, hopefully like, you know, a thousand year kind of experience that we're all going through. Right. Um, you know, I feel really honored that so many of us in the education space are really kind of tackling and talking about, you know, some really longstanding structural issues. Um, and I would encourage you students to remember that, you know, this is going to be a weird year. Um, I promise every one of us is talking about changes. We are talking about how to support you. Um, I know every single admissions officer that I have, excuse me, that I have talked to has been really about, you know, putting students first. And so I would encourage you to, as much as it may seem dark and gloomy out there, there are people that are advocating for you. All of us want to have a return back to normal. Um, This is not fun, um, but I promise it will get better. I don't know what that looks like necessarily, but be utilizing your resources, be flexible, be adaptable. Um, and yeah, I mean, I always like to say that the best generations, uh, and I might be biased because I graduated like near the 2008 times, uh, the best generations are the ones that experienced a lot of hardship because they're able to go out and change the world. So hate to sound like a Hallmark card here because I feel like I'm going like full Hallmark kind of, but it's, it's, it's a crazy time, but I'm really excited because there are some real great conversations happening about how do we make higher education better how do we make higher education more equitable and how do we make it more student focused? And so I'm perversely excited as to what will come out of this. Um, and I'm really, really proud of my students. If I'm being hundred percent honest, I've never, I've never been more proud of kids. You're the best, Nicole. Thanks so much. Thanks, Arun. It's good to be here. Okay. That's it. I enjoyed that. Thank you, Nicole. It feels really cathartic getting real like that. And loyal listeners, it's now your solemn mission to call out people whenever they're wrong about college admissions or share this episode with them, whatever feels right. That's a wrap on season one. We hope you enjoyed it. I know we had a blast and appreciate the kind words you've sent our way. A huge shout out to Frank Martinez. He's CollegeWise's resident filmmaker and he flipped those considerable talents into becoming the man behind the curtain and producing this podcast. And thanks to Kevin McMullen for his support, logistical, philosophical, and otherwise. This is our first crack at podcasting, and we did our best to give you something you can actually use. Before recording a single episode, we had long conversations about what the life of this podcast might be. Information of any kind usually has a half-life. This is why we decided to dedicate season one to the universal truths of college admissions. I know, I know. It all sounds a bit grandiose, but I'm confident these ideas, principles, nuggets of wisdom we shared... They'll be valuable even as the landscape of admission shifts under our feet, which, let's face it, it's happening every dang day. Consider this first season an express admissions boot camp. Share it out with anyone you know going through the college admissions process. We won't be mad. And if you're already hankering for season two, rest assured, we're hatching plans right now. 
Look for new episodes of Get Wise in the fall. I'd love to give you a specific date, but as you may be aware, there's a pandemic going on, so we're doing our best here. In the meantime, check out www.collegewise.com. We've got an amazing blog happening over there. We've got free webinars, free guides. And if you're interested in hiring one of our amazing tutors or counselors, you can get more information there as well. All right, that's it for Rapid Fire Myth Destruction, and that's it for Season 1. I'm Arun Panasami. This has been Get Wise College Admissions Explained. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you in the fall. In the meantime, wear a mask, stay well, and stay curious.